Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and my guest today is Dr. J. Josh Smith. Josh is the lead pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia area. He has ministered in over 25 countries around the world, as well as served as a missionary in Central Europe. His biggest passion, however, is for advancing Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth through all kinds of ministries out of the local church. He graduated from Liberty, from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Andrea, have four daughters and one son, and uh, it's a delight to connect with you. We have a mutual friend and a guy named Mark Sigsby. A little shout out to my friend. Mark and I were in the D.C. area for about a dozen years, and he got a hold of your book, and he pestered Hannah and me and said, you got to get Josh on the podcast. So here we are. (laughs) Well, I love when people pester other people on my behalf. That's great to hear. (laughs) So but before we get into uh, the Titus 10 project, tell us a little bit about your backstory and and how you ended up outside of Athens, and you have to be a Go Dogs fan now, I guess. Yeah, this is a good time to be a Dogs fan, too. So I grew up in the Atlanta, Georgia area. My dad was an evangelist. I'm actually fourth generation preacher on both sides of my family. So I tell people I tried to do something else, but this is just what we do, I guess. <laughs> Graduated from college, spent some time overseas. And after that, really have been in the local church ever since. So I've been pastoring for uh, about 18 years now. I love the local church. I love pastoring. And about 15 years ago, 2008, I really started to be burdened for the men in our church. I had no idea what to do. I needed help. I needed to raise up some men. And so I just started trying to figure out praying what to do. And discovered the little 46 verses of the book of Titus and started taking guys through it. And 15 years later, it's in print and been through a lot of versions since then. But I just love, I love men's ministry. I love investing in men, speaking to men. It's just one of my favorite things to do. Well, I enjoyed uh, reading your book because I'm a little ahead of you, probably your dad's age, but I was 28 when I went to the first church in Grand Prairie, Texas. And I read your preface and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't That's know what exactly I'm doing. Right. I have no idea what I'm doing, and uh, I don't know anything about leadership. And one thing I will say for the record, and I want to encourage especially younger pastors, and you probably interface with more of them than I do at this chapter, but younger guys, they don't have it all together, and they need resources like this Titus 10 project because I don't want to sound unkind, but there seems to be a, I got it, I'm a visionary, I'm a leader, I know how to do this, as opposed to, I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. You know, my heart's always been discipleship. So let, let's start at the beginning. So you pick 10 guys and you spend how long in the book of Titus? Well, that's I don't do it exactly like that anymore, okay. but originally that's what I did. So, you know, you're talking about young pastors. One thing I've kind of found universally true from no matter what size of church, pastors generally want to invest in men. They just don't have a clue how. Okay, I'm getting calls all the time, particularly since the book came out. Hey, I'm a pastor of a church of 100. What do I do? So my context was a pastor of a church at that point. This was the previous church I was in with probably four to 500 people in it. And I just needed to do something. So I picked 10 men. I handpicked them from all generations. So I had a couple of guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way up to one guy in his mid-80s. And I just invited him to come spend 10 weeks with me. And I decided I would take him to the book of Titus and 10 men, 10 weeks, the book of Titus. I very creatively, I called it the Titus 10. (laughs) And we just started walking through Titus. And at that point, I just was walking through it verse by verse. I realized, you know, it talks about the local church. It talks about the need for leaders. Yeah. It talks about what happens when you have rebellious men in the church. That's a huge part of Titus. It talks about older men, younger men, men in the workplace, chapter three. Like I just discovered these 46 verses cover about everything. And so 10 minutes at a time, by the time I had left that church, I had taken 120 men personally 
through the Titus 10, through the book of Titus. Well, it's really neat to me. I just thought about this a few months ago, so I looked at it. I went back to my previous church's website in Dallas. I think there were 13 men on the website, including lay elders, elders. I've been gone for five and a half years. Every man on that website except for one had been through the Titus 10. Wow. So it's just encouraging to see that God just used something that really came out of, Michael, what you just said, a prayer. Lord, I have no idea what to do, but I'd really like to minister to some men. You know, in your book, you talk about the well, what we call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, First and Second Thess. When I was, you know, very young at twenty-eight, I often tell the story in hindsight that Paul discipled Timothy, who discipled me, because I didn't know what I was doing, and I spent so much time in the pastorals going, "Okay, Lord, this is a younger guy, probably in his forties, I would guess, maybe." In any event, it was striking and exactly what you articulated. They're timeless. They're principles that are as true the moment Paul wrote them as, as today. The thing that got me, Josh, was God uses his word. As you go through it, so you don't need to be fancy or uber creative or go up on the mountain and have a vision. Just get guys and get their nose in the book over a period of time. And it, it's pretty much, you know, now let, before we get in the content, you had to have developed a lot of relational time around these guys, too. Because there were coffees and lunches and, you know, maybe even vacations with them. Yeah, a guy called me recently. I did this probably two weeks ago, and I called him back. Pastor, I don't know. He just found out about the book and, and said, how do I do this? And I said, well, how I did it is I invited these 10 men for 10 weeks, and then I made a few commitments. They had to make some commitments to me, but one of my commitments to them is at some point during these 10 weeks, I'm going to get together with you. We're going to have coffee. We're going to have lunch because I want to use this time to get to know you. One of the other things we had them do is one man every week during the 10 weeks had to share his story. The last 15 minutes was a guy telling what's going on in his life. Well, when you get 10 men around a table, and if they'll be honest, which usually happens about week three or four, when the first guy gets honest and other people do, you just start to love these guys. You know, I think I tell in the introduction, when I left that church and went to my reception, you know, at the end that I was leaving, going to another church, I think what surprised me the most is the men that hugged me and a few of them crying and saying, that process really changed my life. And I realized there wasn't much to it. I mean, I just, I spent time with men. I gave them an opportunity to share and I invested in them. I got together. We had a retreat every year that was only for men who'd been through Titus 10. Oh, nice. Yeah. We kind of made of a little, a little, you know, fraternal order or something like yeah. that. You're right. It's just discipleship. But man, when you invest in somebody, they're committed to you for, for a long time. Howard Hendricks was one of my great professors and mentors. And he would mm-hmm. say, you know, if I ever come visit you, I want to see your men. I'm going to ask you, where are your men? And uh, it resonated with me. Anyway, I applaud your efforts. Let's talk about the book. You've got a very helpful guide, but I want to talk about these 10 chapters, Dominion, Gospel, Identity, Assignments, Authority, Character, Doctrine, Mission, Zeal, and Investments. The thing that struck me, Josh, you, you put some time packaging that, and I appreciate it. I'm sure the first few iterations, it wasn't quite as crystalline in your head. That's true. I mean, it started off, and I have all this content still. It started off verse by verse through Titus. I mean, that's generally how I preach, and so that's how I was teaching. But I would say probably after four years of teaching this, I just started to see these themes emerge a lot, I say, from the context and the content of the book of Titus. And these themes started to emerge, and so I started to see them. I mean, identity and assignments were probably the first two I saw, where Paul starts by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ and an Mm -hmm. apostle— I started to think about the difference between those two terms and what's the difference between our identity and our assignments. And then I thought about the structure of the book of Titus where these three chapters, really it's men in the church, chapter one, men at home, chapter two, and men at workplace, chapter three. And so I started to look at that idea of men and their different domains. And so it's just, 
year by year, it just became more clear. And so that was the fun thing about finally writing this book. Someone just said, when's your next book coming out? I said, well, it took me 15 years to write this one, so it may be a while. Yeah, don't teach Isaiah for a group of guys for 20 years. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> well, maybe so. Maybe so. Well, the reason I think the book's resonating is it, I like to read something that's been tested. So hmm. I've been teaching this stuff. Now we do it differently. I'm in a much larger church. And so now we do it at groups. I just finished about 300 guys taking them through it, but we did it at round tables nice. and they have a table leader. They hear me talk, then yeah. they discuss and they're doing the discipleship, which is working. But as long as you can get guys around a table talking about the word of God and having been forced to answer questions, that's a good thing. Well, you know, and, and this again, I, I don't mean to be unkind to the other ways of doing church, but this is the model. He said, make disciples of all ethnos. And I heard, gosh, in my seminary days, you know, get the men, get the men, get the men. Women will always be involved in the ministry. Get the men involved because they're going to sit there folding their arms going, I'm not going to that thing. And you've tapped into that. And it's exciting to see, you know, the discipleship is the, it's not church growth, is it? It's discipling people. And then there's a natural health to that. And there's a natural growth to that. Because other people go, well, wow, he's changed. Or what are you doing? And tell me about that group. And then it becomes this sort of, I want to get in there, which you also tell in your your story. Talk about this term dominion, because that can hit people the wrong way. What do you mean when you say (laughs) dominion? Well, it's funny because when I do a men's retreat, I always start with dominion. I let the church decide the other three or four I'll do, but I always do dominion. And I always say, every time I talk about it, I feel like I need to look over my shoulder to make sure no one's... (laughs) No ladies are listening to us talk about this, you know, and I make sure I say there's a difference in dominating and dominion. Those are not the same thing. So by dominion, I just go back to Genesis and when God called Adam and Eve to take dominion over the earth. And so dominion means to work and to keep. And then I talk about a man's four primary domains. If you're going to give man dominion, he's got to have domains. His domains are the local church, his family, his workplace, and his own flesh. That's a huge deal in Titus, taking dominion over your own flesh. And so by work and keep, what I really mean is this, is that a faithful, godly man, every area of his life is going to be better because he's there. It is sweat. It is toil. It is hard work. I mean, the idea of working and keeping or taking dominion is really plowing. So I'm doing this hard work that no one ever notices that eventually will bear fruit. It doesn't get any glory in doing that work of plowing, but it matters. And so I kind of take that idea of dominion opposite of what the term sounds like and say dominion is working really hard for the sake of everyone that's been entrusted to you mm-hmm. and every area that's been entrusted to you. So it, it really is self-sacrificial, Christ-like yeah. hard work. My dad had a saying that reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. Mm, and good. all of us, my uh, older brother and older sister would, you know, I would say one thing we were examples of is we're never afraid of hard work, never were. And that was get your hands dirty, you know, go in and do it. Doesn't matter. And he would celebrate the end, but it was the fact that you could work. Right. And I think part of that was his depression mindset. But for me as a believer, it made so much sense, whether it's study, whether it's pursuing somebody in the church that might be a difficult individual, you know, cause you always have challenges and, in a ministry, but it's the idea that God sees our effort, not in a reward context, but are you being faithful? Are you out there being faithful? And faithfulness typically means putting your shoulder to the wheel, right? And not worrying about who gets the credit. Now, this word gospel means everything. I I have kind of lost my mind in the last decade with it. It's not gospel preaching. It's got to be the gospel. And I've watched some of these, these very 
gifted guys, and every fifth word is the gospel, and we're living out the gospel, and this is the guy. And I go, come on, give it a rest. Explain the gospel, what it means in the New Testament, and then how you're using it. So again, I'm going to push you a little bit. What do you mean when you say the gospel? Well, one of the reasons this chapter's in here is because there are two of these glorious passages in the book of Titus, one in chapter two, one in chapter three, that really explain what it means to know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. Where I go and the structure of the book really matters. So I start with dominion. Here's who God created you to be. Here's God's design. The problem is you're broken. And so we don't naturally work hard. We don't naturally love others. We don't naturally serve. We don't naturally sacrifice for others. So our manhood is like utterly broken. The little picture I like to give is like taking a egg and an attack hammer. And you take that little hammer and hit the egg. Well, that's your manhood. Our manhood is broken. So after you get to dominion, the question is, well, how can your broken manhood be put back together? Well, the answer is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So what I do is I go through those two gospel passages and I say, okay, what does it mean to come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, to have our manhood restored? The first thing that has to happen for every man is he's got to get right with God. And that's by trusting Jesus Christ and understanding that God has not only saved us from something, but for something. That's huge in Titus, this idea of being saved for good works. That's a big deal. So I try to just give them this vision that you're a broken man, and that's okay, everybody is, but God wants to put you back together, and the way he does is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you're saying these things, which I'm just, my hair in the back of my neck standing up, because it's so clear, it's so basic in Scripture, but we're always going after the new shiny thing. We're always going after the, and I'm not going to name names, but the newest conference, the Bigger Better Church. Pastors are very susceptible to looking down the street, literally metaphorically, and seeing the Bigger Better thing. What's kept you centered on this? Because I'm sure there's churches within, you know, 20, 30 minutes of you that are 30,000 people. And it's like, you know, wait, God has clearly instructed, I call it a mandate. I didn't have a calling of the mandate to make disciples. And you seem to have settled in on that. Well, I tell our staff all the time, I said, any church can beat us on a lot of things, but they're not going to beat us on the basics. We're going to love people well. We're going to greet people well. We're going to preach Jesus Christ. We're going to sing Christ-exalting songs. We're going to minister to people, disciple. Like, I don't care if we get beat on a thousand other flashy things, but we're going to do the basics really well. Mm. And so I've just tried to kind of make it as the center of my ministry that. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the questions I get asked the most when I do these podcasts is, how do you get men interested in doing this? That is not a problem. It isn't. It is not a problem. But what they don't really have time for is cheesy, trite, and so much men's stuff is just cheesy. Like they they don't, they don't need to go on a camping trip to discover their inner manhood. They just, (laughs) they want to know foundations for men. Wait, 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 wait. You don't have an ho-ho stick like John Bly? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I love that kind of stuff. I just, you know, I just, that's why, honestly, we put the word foundations as the subtitle. Like what this book is. This is what you build your life on. There's a thousand other things that matter, but these are the foundations. And so I just want my ministry to be all about that. Let's start building something on on simple, solid foundations, which I would say most men's books skip. Yeah. They skip the foundations. Well, you know, it's interesting. And again, I, I was a Robert Bly aficionado, and you may or may not have read O'Sharon's book, Finding Our Fathers. He was a psychiatrist mm. from Harvard or Yale. He kind of tapped in on this, and then Robert Bly was the popular version. And then guys like Gordon Dalby came along, and then Stu Weber. 
probably was the one that popularized it in the Christian market. Stu's a dear friend with the four pillars, and he's a man's man. And we saw a trend in those men's ministries. You had guys like Robert Lewis doing the men's fraternity, which had had a really interesting shelf life. But all those programs, they're marketed at a time and place that works. But the challenge is you can't keep going. And what I appreciate about what you're done with the Titus 10 project is you're just getting them in the word. Let's spend some time in the scripture and see what God does in your life. It's, it's the old Bible study, observation, interpretation, application, and you're doing it with a group right. of guys. It's kind of simple, isn't it? It is. This summer, I just finished a full Bible study, a 10-week Bible study for this, which a Bible study for every day. So I wrote five for every chapter. So you do one a day throughout the week. And I just rooted them all in a scripture. So like, let's read the scripture. Let's get into the Bible and let's see what it says and let's draw it out. I mean, that's my heart. That's the way I preach. I'm a Bible guy. So um, Okay, let, let me stop you because I'm thinking right now we're talking mostly to younger pastors or pastors that might be program driven or budget driven. What's your diagnostic on why they don't get back to these basics? Uh, they take longer. I used to have this chart. It's funny because I was trying to find it recently. And I wait, couldn't wait, find wait, it wait, wait. You mean they got to study and work? <laughs> <laughs> well, and just, we want results. And I get okay. it. Like, I feel that pressure. They talk about the idea of a movement versus a program. A program starts big, ends up small. It's promoted by the pastor. It's got a lot of flash. A movement is something that no one really knows is going on, but after 10 years, it bears a lot of fruit. Wow. What I've seen is men's ministry is better when it's a movement, not a program. I have taken almost 500 men through this at my church. I have never announced it on a Sunday or in any venue. And there's hundreds of men in our church that don't even know I do it. And yet I've taken 500 men through it. Okay. You, but you haven't like anecdotally mentioned it in an illustration about I was no, with my they know I've guys. The book. No, they know I've written the book, but I don't talk about it. And the reason wow. I do is I started by inviting the first 50 guys that I wanted to go through it. This is here at our church now. And then they invited the next guys. So if you want to commit okay. to a table— then you get your table. A men's fraternity does stuff like this. And then you get the guys that you want at their yes. table. And so what's happening is we're creating a movement. Now, when I think about my first church, 120 men I took through, but I was there 11 and a half years. So that was, you know, it kind of seems like, well, that's that's not a lot, but oh, it was 10 huge. at a time. It's huge. And we just plowed through it. Yeah. And I left 120 men at that church that most, you know, 12 of them are still in leadership at the church, but it's slow work and it's not flashy work, but it seems to me it's the right kind of work. Hendricks had us read A.B. Bruce, Training of the Twelve, which is a yeah. tome to slog through. I've read it three times. Once I read it with a group of guys that were all smarter than me, and we met very early during the summer and went through it. And I mean, it's watch one, do one, teach one at the end of the day. It's, you know, you are doing what Christ did for three years you're doing it in shorter time space, but the multiplication aspect, I think, and I love your distinction between program versus movement, because this isn't a program that you're starting and stopping. It's transformation of people's lives. That's right. That's right. No, I, and I, that whole feel, even the Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism, I think I quote that in the book. Yeah. I'm talking about the thing, the quote that changed my life from his book was, men were Jesus's method. So what's the method of ministry? Yeah. Men. Like, that's the method. So, like, what are we trying to do? And this is what I would say to a pastor. Listen, I know there's so much pressure to do a thousand other things, but I would start with just developing men. And don't make it a big program. Invite three men if that's all you got in your church and spend 10 weeks with them. Go through something like this and then decide what's next. But just 
men, men, men. Like that, you know, the whole context of Titus is so interesting where Paul discovers this church in Crete and it tells us in chapter one, it's being ravaged by rebellious men. They're disrupting entire families. They're preaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to preach. These are terrible men. So Paul drops off Titus and says in verse five of chapter one, the first thing I want you to do is put men in place. Get the church in order and find men. So what's the first thing that the church needs? It needs godly men. And those men have to deal with the rebellious men. But I just think we miss the simplicity of, listen, I want to be here for a while. So let's take the long-term approach. I love that Eugene Peterson. Let's do long obedience in the same direction. Let's just, let's take the long-term approach and let me just develop men and see how that changes the church. From when you started doing this to where you are today, and you mentioned already that you're doing basically table groups and making other men in multiplication as opposed to you doing everything. What other changes did you learn along the way? Sure. I would say discussion is critical. You have to have an opportunity for guys to open up. So the way I do it now, we have breakfast together. So I do this. I'm not doing it this semester. I've done it the last three. I'm doing it again next semester in the spring. I get them around a round table and get breakfast. That just kind of gets them waking up and talking a little bit. I want them talking. I'll talk for 20 minutes or so, and then I break them up in small groups, the groups that they're at the table with already. So those groups are building relationships. So I've really worked hard on the discussion questions and just forcing those guys to have conversation. I don't know. I I try not to put a lot of pressure on that. Guys are kind of tired of the, let's get an accountability group and all share our junk the first week. You know, guys are kind of sick of that. At the same time, every guy's got a lot of stuff. And I think through the weeks, you got to be patient through the weeks when you start talking about issues with dad and, you know, all that kind of, all the biblical stuff as well. Guys start to open up. So I found discussion is extremely important in this context. And then time outside of group. So a lunch, a breakfast, a coffee, or you're following up with somebody individually. Those are kind of things I'm learning that's helpful. And just, I would say the number one thing I've learned over the last two years where I've been doing this more and more and doing more and more men's retreats, men are really desperate. I'm not sure they're super fired up about doing some of the things we used to make them do, the big banquets, all that, but they're desperate for someone to invest in them. Hmm. Very few of them have good dads. And by the way, that's the context of Titus 2. No one came from a Christian home, so they don't have a context for good men. So where do you find them? Well, the church. Where do you get a model for manhood? The church. So I just, guys are desperate. I mean, guys are really desperate. And, you know, the the culture, even in the church, uh, Leon Puddle's book, The Feminization of the Church, uh, Mm -hmm. he made the observation, what, that was in the 70s, maybe, late 70s, early 80s. Men have been emasculated literally, emotionally, spiritually. The church has become very feminine. And pastors are guilty. You know, pastors, right. we cater to programs and budgets and the flashy, shiny things as opposed to some of the, the hard work of, and I don't want to say hard work, it's just behind the scenes work. It's, right. it's discipleship. But the other thing about guys, I think they're afraid. The last two churches I've served, I'm older, so I'm kind of a father figure in some respects. To tell a young lady in the church, a young couple, you look lovely today. You can't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. To give a woman a hug is inappropriate. Where in, in my day and age, you know, to, to give a, a young girl who came up and hugged the pastor was a normal, healthy thing. And so now we're all on our guard. We're all afraid of saying anything other than eye contact and walking away. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's become such a, a volatile culture to be a man. And I'm not even talking about what's going on in the LGBTQ. I'm just talking about in the local assembly. It's tough to know who I am when I walk in those doors and I have a community with these people. 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, your your observation when we talked five minutes ago or so on Dominion, like, like in this day and age to start a book with Dominion sounds crazy. <laughs> so guys, I think men are afraid to talk about manhood. This is a tough time to talk about manhood. But let me, let me tell you why I think it's so important. I'm discovering that almost every man feels like an utter failure in some area of his mm. life. And most of the time, it's at home. So oftentimes, the reason a guy works so hard at work is because he gets affirmation at work. He feels like he knows what he's doing at work. And then he comes home, feels like he doesn't know what he's doing, and so he doesn't do anything. So I'm talking to our men all the time about you can't avoid home because you don't know what you're doing. You've got to go to work, work hard, go home and work hard, engage at home. And I think guys just get home and they feel like failures. They feel like failure in the relationship with Jesus, failure with their wife and with their kids. And so that one of the things I think we need to do is just help them get some confidence from the word of God Mm. on what it means to go home and work hard and be engaged. But I think guys feel really insecure in a lot of areas. And there's a lot of fear and all of that with men these days. And the other unfortunate dilemma of Western mindset is we give our best hours to our job. And, you know, you wake up in the morning, you're mentally aware, you got something to attack, to do, to accomplish, to, you know, kill it and bring it home. Yeah. And then when you come home, you're exhausted. And you, if you got younger children, you know, to ramp up that energy and be involved in their lives, even for a, a well-rounded foundation guy, it's tough. I talk a lot about that yeah. in the book and particularly when I teach it. And when I do a men's retreat, I talk a lot about this. I just, our kids can't, and our family can't always get our leftovers. You know, our, our yeah. wife come, when we come home, our wife's tired too. Yep. So, I mean, I got five kids and the real turning point in my life was realizing that I needed to go home and work hard. I needed to go home and give my best. We joke a lot when Andrew and I were doing premarital counseling, a very, very well-known couple, very well-known, met with us a couple of times. And one of the things the wife said is, you know, my only goal in life is to make sure that when my husband comes home, the home is the perfect place for him to come home to. (laughs) I remember thinking, that sounds fantastic. And then I just realized- Fantasy. that's really dumb. Yeah. Like, like, am I expecting like my, me to call my wife when I leave the the, the church and say, Hey, have I'm you picked up the house? Yeah, that's right. And I think the mind shift that happened in me is realizing I've got to walk in the door and be engaged. Yeah. I got to wrestle my son. I got to listen to my daughters. I got to kiss my wife. I got to do dishes. And at nine o'clock at night, I'll go to bed tired. But I really challenge men a lot to go home and reserve some energy and go home and be engaged. You know, one of the things, and, and boy, I think every father feels like an epic failure at times, but, you know, we, we really tried hard. When I walked in the door, I wore a suit and tie in those days, and I would go to the bedroom, and Cindy would follow me and close the door. And it might be 10 minutes, might be 15. Nobody came in the bedroom. Yeah. And we talked about the day, and she needed to offload being with four kids all day, and yeah. I needed to give her, and I, and I would pray. I had a 20 minute commute in those days, maybe half an hour. And I remember, okay, Lord, I got to gear up. I can't do it in the flesh. <laughs> I got to really be interested in what she's going to tell me. Yeah. And then I don't want to relive my day. I don't want to tell her about what I've been through. I came home, but I got to tell her something. And it's yeah. not cliche or trite. And that, as we look back on 43 years of marriage, that really was foundational for us. And I think, in, in hopefully, a good way our kids saw it. You know, mom and dad, it's important. And then it was the same thing, rough house with the, the son, That's it, yeah. read every night with the girls as much as possible. <laughs> when they were younger, do the bath duty and so forth. But those busy years do go by. It's insufferable while it's happening, but 
boy, before you know it, and the car keys come out, everything changes dramatically. And and then you look back on it and go, oh, you know. So anyway, but good for you for hanging in there. Talk about authority. That's another minefield of a word today. Sure. This last, it's my favorite verse in Titus, Titus 2.15, the last verse of chapter two, where he says, a rebuke and exhort with all authority, let no one disregard you. That is a strong verse. And so I talk about what it means as a man to walk first under authority and then in authority. If a man tries to walk in authority, but not under authority, he'll abuse his authority. So what I say is this, I say the first responsibility of every man is to walk under the authority of Jesus Christ. So there's two, when I do a men's conference, I always start by saying there's two postures for Christian manhood. One is on your knees under the authority of Jesus. And the second is standing up, doing what God's called you to do. So part of that authority is this, man, what has God called you to do? Well, do it. Like we can't take our need to invest in our children and and trust that to somebody else. I've got to walk in the authority that God has given me to be a husband, to be a father, to love, to provide discipline, to have hard conversations in the church. And I think what you have in, in Crete, in this church that Paul's writing to, to Titus, is just this super dysfunctional church. And Paul's saying, Titus, Titus, I've left you there under the authority of Jesus Christ to take care of these issues. So go do it. And I think a man needs to hear that. A man needs to hear first, get under the authority of Jesus. So I, the only reason I have any authority is because God has given it to me. So he's told me these are areas in which I'm entrusting to you. And so then go walk in that. That's humble. It's serving. Because you're first walking under the authority of Jesus, that's not domineering at all. And it's not overbearing. It's just doing what God has called you to do. And I talk a lot in that chapter about walking in authority over the enemy on behalf of our children, our children are under attack. So how can I walk in authority over that? So that's a little bit of a complicated chapter, but I felt like it needed to be in there. Sid and I taught on marriage and family for many, many years, and and we often differentiated between headship and submission, which is typically taught as roles. And I always argued submission isn't a role. Submission is a response to authority. And headship really isn't a role. Headship is a position. And then how you, and I like the way you articulated it as well, but we try to encourage young couples especially, look, you don't play the trump card. The objective of being the head of the household, if you want, or headship, is you're going to die for your wife. You're going to put her needs ahead of yours. So before you go in there and go, hey, clean up the house, and this is the way. And I think most guys hear that. I can't go home and tell my kids to, you know, whatever. You can go home and lead your kids, and you can go home and cherish your wife. I tell this little story about my son arguing with my mom. I, I don't know, maybe he was 10 and I'm in the other room with my newspaper and iced tea, and I just sat on the chair. About dinner's about ready, and you know I get 10, 15 minutes to flip through the paper, and he's arguing with Cindy. And I had this little routine, and I, I say, uh, "Are you arguing with your mother?" And he goes, mumbles, and I was very specific about you have to answer me clearly. Mm. Yes, I said, "What are you arguing with her about?" And that would take a few questions, and I go, "Do you really want to argue with your mother?" And he kind of mumbled. I go, when you argue with your mom, who are you really arguing with? And I wanted him to get to say you. You know, yeah. I said, okay, do you want to argue with me? <laughs> That's great. And he would mumble something. And that's, I, I was always for clarity. What? You know, and then he finally yeah. say, no, sir. And I go, what do you need to do? And the same, we'd get to the apology. And then I would tell the story and I never got out of my chair. You know? <laughs> oh, that's all. Well, honestly though, I would say that's exactly what I mean by authority. Like yeah. what I think is most men are sitting in their chair and just letting the kids smart off to mom and yeah. not engaging. 
And what I'm saying is that's not acceptable. Yeah. Like a dad's responsibility is to step in and do exactly what you did. I'm going to use everything you just said, by the way. <laughs> well, it's a fun story because it's uh, haunted me in a good way. I didn't always do it right, but it's like, it really isn't that hard because you know the bull in the house, there, there's a time. Dennis Rainey tells a story in Africa about these elephant reserves and they were, the juveniles were going crazy and they, this old African handler said, look, you need a bull. And they had to go find a particular species of elephant and bring this old bull in. And the, the story was comical because within like 20 minutes, this thing was tusking these young juveniles and pitching them in the air. And they said in one day, the whole reserve was back to normal. Wow. Because you needed a male in there. So no, you don't, as a juvenile, you don't treat younger female elephants that way. You don't, yeah. you know, try to do all these things. You're a juvenile, illustrative in nature, but illustrative in the home, that you don't really have to be heavy handed. You have to be strong and firm. And you got to keep going back to the model of Jesus in that, right? Bingo. So Jesus is the one who ultimately walked in authority. He also came to, to serve and not be served. Yeah. So it well, looks a I lot think, like that. But we get that mixed up. In Ephesians 5, when I officiate weddings, I go, let's talk about this for just a minute. Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church and gave himself up for her. If you just stop there, if you didn't read the rest of the paragraph, what does that mean? It doesn't yeah. mean what the Western culture has accused of, of, of being misogynist or right. domineering or chauvinistic. It means I'm going to die for Cindy. And that's a, boy, you talk about counterintuitive, counter everything, right? I mean, I don't know what your experience has been on that, but how, how to help guys get to the point you are your wife's champion. That's it. And it's just constant death to self. Yeah. Paul Miller wrote a book called The J-Curve, which is basically the the pathway of Jesus, which is dying to self. And then resurrection is kind of the pathway of life. And my wife and I talk about that all the time, like marriage and raising children is just death to self. <laughs> that, you know, going back to that thing that those people told us marriage counseling, I thought I would come home, put up my feet and Andrew would massage my feet while she brought me a cold iced tea, you know. And, Have you gone back to but, that woman and said, uh... <laughs> Oh, I should, oh, I should. I don't know. But I, uh, no, but it is, it's just a lot of death to self. It's death to self. And that's where life comes from. And so you do it joyfully. So that's why I want to take some of these things, like we said, like dominion and authority that matter, but say, this is Christ. This is a lot of service and a lot of love and a lot of doing the hard things. You've probably got hundreds of anecdotes and stories, but one or two maybe where you saw a guy really latch onto something and he really changed and grew up. Yeah, I think that's probably the most encouraging thing. Having watched this over the last few years and hearing stories, you know, the, the chapter, one of the chapters I love, it's a very unusual chapter, is on zeal. That probably is my favorite one to just teach. I love the one on doctrine. This is another thing. Mm -hmm. I try to challenge men that, that they need to be the, of all people, they need to know the word the most. Women always know the word more than the yeah. men seem to in the church. So I'm just, I'm really challenging men to be men of doctrine. That's a huge one. But that idea of zeal, I stand up to preach and I see these guys, they got a hand in one pocket and a cup of coffee in the other. And they're not singing when we're singing and their little boys looking at them while they're not engaged in anything that's going on. And I just think how far we've departed from the vision God had of men that were passionate about the things of God, really just full of the Holy Spirit. And so just the idea of wanting to see men stirred up to be more passionate has been a big deal for me. So I've seen that change. I think guys a lot, just giving them a vision for what it means to be a passionate lover of God. The chapter on identity always really stirs stuff up when we talk about God the Father speaking to God the Son and saying, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
I talk about in the book that that's what every boy needs to hear, every child, boy or girl, from their dad, but they don't usually. So we hear it from the Lord, and God starts to redefine us. So seeing guys get some more confidence by being redefined by Jesus Christ, it's just, it's fun seeing the light come on with men. And I'm realizing the stuff that we're talking about in Titus 10, foundational stuff, most men have never heard. Yeah. The most common thing I hear from older men is, I wish I would have heard this when I was a kid. Yeah. They don't know this stuff. And this is basic, solid, foundational manhood. It's no fluff. It is foundational manhood. But men don't have that foundation. So if we wonder why our men are flaky, they don't have a foundation. We've never given them one. Again, the culture is so different than when I was younger because the culture is so against men. And if you're a white male, you know, you're the enemy that needs to be destroyed. So in the corporate world, these poor guys are walking on eggshells and worried about everything in the uh, identity world, the way the world defines it. It's very challenging, nuanced to be, hey, I'm married. I'm a man. You know, I mean, that's a threat to the construct. And then when they come to local churches, like, mm, here we go, you know, these, these religious programs. So I applaud your energy for that. And, and, you know, I applaud the fact that you're excited about being a leader and training leaders because that's, you know, I think that's what drew people to Christ. That's what drew people to Paul. The hardship, of course, made some fall away, a lot fall away. This little transformation called the resurrection, the Holy Spirit changed everything, right? Because now we're indwelt with God's Spirit to be different. It seems tougher to be a godly man today than 20 years ago. It does. But I would say that one thing I'm discovering is my dad used to say this a lot. My dad was a strong, godly man, but he used to always say strength attracts strength. Yeah. So strong men want to be around strong men. And if you're a pastor and you preach with strength and confidence and some kind of authority, and then you decide you want to invest in men, you start to attract strong, godly men. But you've got to be that first. And so I agree that it's hard. I just think, man, when men start to, and get all the silly stuff out, when men just start talking about real manhood and what it means to be a godly, faithful man who knows the word of God and loves his family and sacrifices for the church and for his family, you start to attract strong men. So that's why I would say to guys, just do the hard, slow work. Start being that kind of man. And then you'll start attracting men that want to come to your church. Men are leaving churches for the same reason men used to go to churches. They're tired of the fluff. They want solid content. Yeah. They want something serious-minded. They want to be helped. They want to know how to build a foundation. So have that strength, and you'll attract strong men. Bugs are attracted to light. And even though strength attracts strength, you're always going to have some marginal people that are going to drain the life out of you. They're going <laughs> to be problems. They're going to you know wreck the group or whatever. What's your encouragement? Because you, you and I know... Someone's going to get excited. I'm going to get J. Josh's book. I'm going to do this. And they're going to invite eight guys. And one guy's going to ruin the group the third week. You know, he's going to sabotage it or whatever. So how do you help that small group leader or the pastor who's, okay, I got a little courage. I'm going to try this. And he gets his nose, nosebleed right away. It's true. So my antidote for that is, and I know this is not the point of the parable, but it's helped me in leadership wise. Luke 15, the prodigal son, the way the father treats the older brother. What the father does is the father, there's a big party going on and the older brother's mad and he doesn't want to go to the party and he's staying outside and he's pouting. (laughs) I love that the father goes outside and talks to the older son. He invites him in, but he doesn't stop the party. 
And I think what I've discovered is a lot of pastors, this is, and I could talk about this all day. We'll do another podcast. Okay. Pastors <laughs> often will stop the good things going on because of one person who's pouting. Boy. And so what I say is you've got to go outside, invite the powder to come in, but let them know that you're not going to pander to pouting church members is the way I say it. So, hey, brother, we would love for you to come in. We're having a party. People are getting saved. We would love for you to come, but we're not going to stop the party because you're upset. Yeah. So what I would say for men, start moving in the right direction. Get some men who are excited and encouraged and ready. There will be men who will resent it or resist it. Well, love on them, encourage them to be a part, but don't let them stop you. You just got to keep moving forward. In the first church I served, I'll never forget it. We had someone came to me all alarmed and Josh, and they said, oh, some couples got together and they had a meeting in their house. And that was a threat, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and right. so I'm 28, and I don't know up from down. And I'm like, oh, you know. And I knew these couples, so one of them was a friend. Like, hey, let's have lunch. And I said, what's going on, man? Can I help? And he told me all these bad things. And I went, oh. So I went to the next one, and he told me a whole bunch of different bad things. And after the third or fourth couple that you know was involved in this meeting, I went, why am I doing this? I remember one guy said, hey, I just hosted the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes an issue at elders' meetings. It does. And they're talking about, you know, disciplining these people. And after the third or fourth elder meeting, I, I leaned back again. I'm 28 years old. I got one little tan suit and a couple of dress shirts, you know. And I said, guys, who's leading the church right now? It ain't you and me. That's right. It's about three families that are upset about three very different things that we can't or won't do. Right. And boy, talk about one of those, you know, indelible lessons for me. I'm glad to hear you said it, though, because that's, that's a good anecdote to think about it is, you know, we're, this is the direction we're going. Yeah. God love you. And, you know, I'm a little different in this chapter. I'm out of it. I don't even say we love you. Come in. I go, you know, hey, there's lots of churches. <laughs> it's amazing how less you care the older you I, yeah, get. Yeah, well, it's it's, I got nothing to lose. You know? Oh, I love it. I'm feeling that more and more these days. <laughs> J. Josh Smith's book, The Titus 10, a Broadman Holman publication, as always, in the show notes, you'll find information about the book and a study guide. You can also buy that book anywhere online that you like to purchase books. It's a delight to have you on the podcast, Josh. And I know some folks will pick up the book and we'll pray that they'll go after 810 guys and say, hey, let's take a look at this for a few weeks and see what the Word of God does in their lives. So thanks for your ministry, brother, and appreciate you taking some time. This has been a wonderful use of my time. Thanks so much. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.